Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brainstream Podcast. I'm your host, Harrison, and in this episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Sumner Norman. He's the CEO and co-founder of Forest Neurotech, a focused research organization developing minimally invasive ultrasonic brain implants. Sumner has an extensive background covering physics, mechanical engineering, computer science, and communications. He received his Bachelor's of Science from the University of Utah and a master's and PhD from UC Irvine, all in mechanical engineering, and then completed a neural engineering postdoc at Caltech, where he's still continuing to work as a visiting scholar. These are just some of a long list of accolades and experiences that have made Sumner an expert and pioneer of building ultrasound devices for neuromodulation, neuroimaging, and brain-computer interfaces. Our discussion focused on the mechanisms and benefits of using ultrasound in the brain, its many clinical applications, disruptive potential, forest neurotechs, ultrasonic whole brain computer interfaces, and how to develop these technologies ethically and equitably. This conversation was recorded in August of 2023. In the time since recording, Forest Neurotech has had some big updates, including a five-year partnership with Massachusetts-based ultrasound company Butterfly Network to build its ultrasonic whole brain computer interfaces. Okay, without any further ado, Here's my conversation with Dr. Sumner Norman. Thank you so much for joining us. It's good to talk to you. Of course. It's my pleasure to be here. So you have a lot of really cool experiences, and I just want to start by talking about your professional journey and your journey into neurotech. So I see that you started in physics and then went into haptics, did some science communication and brain-computer interface work. So uh, just walk us through that journey of how you got into neurotech and what you've worked on. Oh yeah, geez, how far back do you want to go? I um, I guess in yeah undergraduate, the first exposure that I had to research um was a theoretical physics lab that was doing solid state physics, X-ray crystallography. Um, I loved mathematics as a kid, so this was up my alley, and it was ended up being a very computational program. So this was like a summer program for students. Um, and I sort of fell into it because it was paid <laughs> is actually what it was. I grew up in a really small wow. town where like there was no science, no engineering. Like it just wasn't something you came across very often, but I loved math. So when I found mm -hmm. someone that would give me $5,000 to do a summer program and do math, I was ecstatic. Um, so that's really what got me into it. I found the love for research there. It was a very computational project. So I had to teach myself to program in Mathematica of all languages, um, and that was sort of my first experience really programming in anger. Uh, and then <laughs> never heard of that, but it sounds it sounds intimidating. So I'll that to you and the other physicists. I increasingly just feel like whenever I talk to a physicist, I'm just like, wow, they can they can do anything. It's like there's a physicist in this random field over here, and I'm always uh, impressed with that. But anyway, I'll let you keep going. Ah, they've they've duped you. <laughs> they duped me too. Um, no, I loved physics, and I still love physics to this day, and it definitely forms a foundation upon which everything else makes sense to me. Um, but I also recognize that, you know, working on the dislocation of a very esoteric crystal structure that no one's ever heard of was maybe not something that would motivate me in the long run. And so I started looking for similar research opportunities at my alma mater, uh, the University of Utah, um, which coincidentally, Richard Norman, no relation to me, is where the Utah array was invented. I'm sure we'll come to that. Um, but anyway, I was in the mechanical engineering department, um, which was my major, and joined a haptics and embedded mechatronics lab. So this was a lab that um, haptics being the, the sense of touch, it was about developing very, very small miniaturized robotics that interacted with our hands, our fingertips in, in this case. So um, teleoperated surgical robots, uh, gaming controllers with haptic feedback, uh, to basic research in psychophysics, how many different directions can you discern with on, on a single fingertip? Hint, the answer is about 16, which is incredible that you can send 16 independent skin stretch uh, movements on your index finger. Phenomenal touch sensors there. That's um, cool. And so, yeah, really enjoyed that research and wanted to kind of go down that direction. I, I got into mechanical engineering kind of being interested in all things that moved, and uh, but eventually found myself really wanting to, what was at the edge? Where was the research going? And I found the most interest in control theory and robotics. And so I wanted to take that a step further. Mm. When I started applying to PhDs, I ran across several labs that I was interested in. I went out and visited a few different universities 
Um, but one of them really stood out, and that was David Rinkensmeyer's lab at uh, University of California, Irvine. And he was developing exoskeleton robotics for rehabilitation. And this to me was like the coolest thing ever, because now you have the known control system of a robotic limb, and you have the sort of biological, fuzzy, squishy version of a control system in a human being. And now you kind of glue these things together and what happens mathematically, what happens at a human level. And that was really, really interesting. I had gotten an NSF uh, fellowship as at the end of my undergrad. So I really had a lot of freedom to pick and choose the project and guide it towards my own direction. And Dave was a wonderful supporter of that. So we very quickly formed a collaboration with a guy named John Wolpock who was a kind of forefather in EEG-based BCIs going you know, way back into the 90s and, and before that even, I think. Um, and so we, we spun up this collaboration to do EEG-based exoskeleton robotic therapy for people with stroke. Hmm. Um, and that was a really fascinating thing because all of a sudden my interest in mathematics and robotics and control theory, which is all kind of, you know, pie in the sky ideas about what could happen, suddenly became very real when a, when a person who's had a stroke walks in and, you know, now it's Larry. And Larry's like, hey, man, I really hope this makes me better because I've been joining scientific study after scientific study. And you realize, oh, this actually has a real impact. And I think that was the first time that the exposure to the human impact started really motivating me at a level that, um, you know, mathematics never can physics never can. So I wanted to drive that forward. I found that patients and their ability and their willingness and motivation to get better was not the problem. Rehabilitation itself um, has made some strides. That's not the problem. The robotics are even getting quite advanced and capable of really cool things, especially in recent years with advances in ML and AI. Um, but the, the ability to get information in and out of the brain was just so limited. Um, and so for these people, the ones that are most severely paralyzed, they're the ones that you want to go back to the kind of origin of that control state, know what their intention is, recreate it with a robot and give them high quality, high repetition practice. But if you go back to the brain and you're just seeing fuzzy squiggles on a screen and no matter how much signal processing you throw at it, you can't make any sense of it because the signal at its origin is limited. That's really frustrating. Um, yeah, I can, I can imagine for someone who is going through rehabilitation, if you've got a EEG device that is maybe, um, detecting the correct signal 60% of the time, like, yes, I can see how that's beneficial, but of course, like it may, it won't aid in that. It won't aid fully in that rehabilitation because it's like, oh, I did the right thing and it didn't trigger it. And so you're, you know, you get confused and yes, that I definitely see how that's a problem. Yeah. So about half of people had this effect where it was like they could control it pretty well. They had some benefit from the therapy. A few people had outstanding benefits from the therapy. Um, the name Larry that I came up with earlier was actually not just like some idea of a person. It was actually a person <laughs> that he, you know, would text me like, hey, you know, this this uh, it was a hand therapy that we were working on with him. He's like, I am better and more capable of texting my grandkids now. This has made like a really substantive difference in my life. And I was like, wanted to cry. I was, I was like the best thing ever. Um, and so you really want that version of the therapy for everyone. But if half the people are like, I don't know, man, like this thing is just like picking up fuzz, then that's not helpful. And, and you know, a lot of times it was just for dumb reasons. Like they had hypertonia. So they had a kind of natural shoulder shrug. And that muscle activity causes huge artifacts in the brain data. And no matter how much filtering you do, if it's if the artifact is too big, you just lose all access to the brain data that you need to trigger the device. And so I really wanted to branch out. Um, I was aware of the kind of super invasive techniques that were out there, like the Utah Ray, getting single neuron signals from you know a neurosurgically implanted device. Um, so I was aware of that sort of work, but I wanted something that could eventually be applicable to a much broader range of people with neurological disorders. So started just going back to my kind of physics roots and like, what's out there? Optically pumped magnetometry came up, diffuse correlation uh, spectroscopy came up and all these sort of new techniques. And I'm like, man, there's like a renaissance in biophysics for neurotechnology happening. And it's sort of hidden. The field doesn't see it as much because, you know, the flashy headline is man controls robotic arm with his, his neuroprosthetic. 
And that's usually done with an implanted array. And then you mm -hmm. kind of see stuff like the commercial efforts of EEG devices, but there's this big kind of chasm between them where technologies are being developed, but are maybe less visible in, in the world. And so I kind of went on a deep dive for that and came across ultrasound in our, about 2017. So that was, that led me on a whole different journey. <laughs> so walk me through that. And yeah, I totally agree. It's the field is still, at least in what people are, are talking about, dominated by electrophysiology technology. So whether it's EEG um, or ECOG or an implant, we're still picking up electrical signals from most of those technologies, but it is cool to see um, some other methodologies coming up, especially for non-invasive systems because of those limitations that you've spoken about with EEG. Mm -hmm. So you spoke about um, a few a few different options, um, a few different technologies like MEG. Um, so why did you land on ultrasound? What was it about uh, functional ultrasound or ultrasound imaging that got you interested specifically and to dedicate your career to? If you just think about the energies that are available at the level of the first principles in physics, light, for example, is wonderful. Really, really small wavelengths, you know, nanometer scale or hundreds of nanometers. And so your diffraction limits are tiny, which means you get resolutions that are incredible. But photons tend to scatter in soft tissue. So as you shoot photons down into the brain, they kind of bounce around and some of them make their way back, but not many. And so you're very limited in depth and that fall off is quite dramatic. And so you'll get a few millimeters, but not much beyond that. And the most interesting problems in neuroscience and neurology are disorders of the brain that are widespread and circuits that, that involve many of these deep areas, as well as cortical structures that are spread widely through the brain. So getting the energy in and out is still really, really hard. Now, there are some things where the, the neuroscience is such that you have this kind of really localized spot in the brain that you want to study. And maybe that is just it. It's a neuroscience question. And optics are going to be phenomenal for that. But they don't really scale up to the whole brain. So, okay, that's not quite optimal. What does scale up to the whole brain? Um, we've talked a little bit about the limitations of electrical signals. Same thing here with magnetic dipoles. So as, as neurons fire, they create an electric potential. Summing those electric potentials, you create magnetic fields. Those magnetic fields emanate out of the brain and are in theory detectable, but they're on the order of femtotesla. And those femtotesla signals are living inside an environment, which is the Earth's magnetic field, which is in microtesla. So you have this hmm. noise signal that if the person moves through the signal, you're creating flux through the magnetic field of the Earth that is thousands of times larger wow. than the brain signals that you're trying to detect. And so you're fighting physics. And as an engineer, I don't like fighting physics. <laughs> I'm an engineer at art. And so when you see this kind of mis mismatch of like how small the signal is that you have to detect, then you go, my sensor needs to have a noise floor that's incredibly, incredibly sensitive. And that's just a hard, hard problem. So today, most MEG, magnetoencephalography, which is this measurement technique of measuring these magnetic fields, are confined to shielded rooms or require active cancellation fields, which are kind of, you know, these complex devices. So I thought, okay, that's quite limited in a neuroscience sense because the person can't walk out of the lab with one of these things on and measure it easily, at least not in the kind of very near future in the way that I was most interested. So, okay, that's not quite right. It also mixes signals that are coming from deep in the brain. So same problem as optics mm -hmm. at some level. Ultrasound's quite interesting because its wavelengths are on the order of hundreds of microns. So that's quite small. So within a, you know, the diffraction limit of the ultrasound means that you're getting resolutions down to hundreds of microns. So within a single voxel, which is a volumetric pixel, right? Uh, you're getting on the order of hundreds of neurons. That's pretty precise. It's not as precise as what you're going to get with an implanted electrode, but it can do that remotely. And because ultrasound penetrates tissue, soft tissue in the human body so well, and we've used it for half a century um, and it's safe, I was like, okay, well, the brain is a sensitive organ. We want to make sure that it's safe. It's roughly, you know, 10 centimeters to the center from in the furthest point in the skull. And so we can reach the middle of it. That sounds quite good. Um, you can, it, you can reach that depth with ultrasound. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. 
And does that does that spatial resolution stay the same um, it, to where you're able to hit hundreds of, of neurons as you go deeper? It, there's a trade-off. So right. it probably is not going to be quite that good. You're going to get closer to millimeters, but you're always almost always going to be sub-millimetric, which is well within the precision with which we understand the brain or neurosurgeons understand the brain these days. We talk to them and we're like, what if we gave you 10 micron accuracy? They're like, what am I going to do with that? Like, I don't, I, I'm not accurate to more than a millimeter. Sure. Anyway. So there's still value there. And, and, you know, to point this out, like functional MRI voxels are on the order of like millimeter, millimeter and a half on side length, which is about 800 times larger by volume than the hundred micron resolution we've been doing at Caltech. Um, so we have a lot of room to wiggle there. Uh, but there, you're right. There's this trade-off between depth and resolution that's inherent in the physics of ultrasound. And then you can also tune that at the kind of technical level by changing the center frequency or the, uh, the transmit frequency that you're using. So as you use lower frequencies, just you know, like a guitar string, lower frequency has longer wavelengths. And so those longer wavelengths mean less resolution or larger voxel sizes, and but they penetrate much deeper. And then vice versa, sense. if you want okay. some stuff that's closer to the surface, just tune up the uh, ultrasound transducer, which you can do electronically to a degree. Um, and that will give you better resolution, but less penetration. So you can sort of trade these things off dynamically. That makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Now, when we're talking about ultrasound, we're not just talking about one thing, right? So there are many different approaches. I've seen some are using um, implantable devices. Some are doing this entirely non-invasively. Some are using it for stimulation. Some are using it for recording. So can you help us uh, understand, I guess, first, when people started applying this to neuroscience? Because a lot of, a lot of people will be familiar with ultrasound from using it to, to see a baby in a pregnant mother, right? Or... Yeah looking at, uh, you know, some GI issue that you might have, right? Mm -hmm. So people might be familiar with that, but how, how different is that from uh, what you're doing uh, with neurotechnology and when did that start? Yeah, you're totally right. In some ways, we've been a victim of our own success here because point-of-care ultrasound has been so successful as a non-invasive way of seeing inside the human body that's so adaptable and variable that you can kind of stick it on a child, a mother, a you know, it doesn't matter. Like in basically any part of the body that doesn't have a bone. And even then you can kind of shoot between the ribs if you want to look at the heart. And so outside of the skull, there aren't that many areas in the body that you can't see with ultrasound. Um, and all that success means that there's been a huge commercialization effort over the last half century and a great safety record. So, you know, why fix what's not broken? Um, but there has sort of been a renaissance in, in ultrasound and other remote sensing techniques for, for neuroscience as people have realized and been butting up against the boundaries of what electrophysiology can do. And I think that that's when people started pulling this in. Focused ultrasound as a neuromodulation technique is a bit quite a bit older um, than the imaging side. So I'll maybe just mention that first. And this isn't my primary ex of expertise. I was more on the imaging side and, and the science that I was doing. Um, but the main idea is that you can take ultrasound energy and rather than pulsing it for imaging, where you kind of pulse and then listen to the backscattered echoes, you just put the energy in, but you focus that down. So kind of like, you know, a, a magnifying glass in the sun or something, you kind of lens the ultrasound down to a single point and focus all of that energy. And then that will literally stretch and squeeze neurons. And there's a couple effects mm -hmm. of that, that it has. One is that there are these mechanically sensitive channels in the cell bodies of your neurons that you will literally squeeze them open and cause them to, to fire. So you actually can change neural activity just based on this mechanical effect. We know that's true. We also know that there's thermal effects. So as you do this repeatedly and you're kind of moving tissue back and forth, you're introducing energy into the system that's, that uh, manifests as heat. And heat also has an effect on, on neural signals and neural firing. And so the balance of these depends on the specific stimulation parameters. It depends on the animal model that you're or human that you're using it in and where you're targeting and a number of other things. And so there is still quite a lot of debate in the field on how to separate these two effects and try to have more of a neuromodulatory effect versus a heating effect. And that's kind of an ongoing debate, but we do know that you can modulate neural activity. Controlling it's still a bit tricky. 
Um, and I'll kind of stop it there. And, you know, that's a deep rabbit hole that <laughs> the field has entire meetings about. Um, that, that seems like an interesting problem because I imagine that at some level, if you're continuing to stimulate, there could be some risks, right? If you're introducing heat that's building up over time, um, that there could be an issue there. But but generally, I, I am imagining that, especially with the wealth of experience, that the that just using ultrasound in general on the body, um, yeah. how much experience is out there, that there's quite a bit of safety data. So that's that's very cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, going into the the other part of it, into recording. Yeah, into recording. Now, this is my bread and butter. This is the one I have fun with. So this one's a lot newer. Um, our collaborators in Paris really innovated this technique back in 2011, where rather than traditional ultrasound imaging, which does kind of line by line scanning, so you kind of focus energy down, you um, these mechanical waves kind of vibrate through the body. And then whenever they hit differences in tissue, boundaries and layers in your in your soft tissues they bounce back and you see that reflection in, as an increase in the amplitude of the wave that comes back to the the transceiver and you use the same um, transceivers to both put the energy in and record it coming back so these are piezoelectric traditionally hmm. um, and then you kind of scan line by line and then eventually reconstruct an entire image our collaborators idea was send a plane wave and that plane wave goes down and then kind of echoes back against all these different scatterers. And the image overall is much worse on a single image. But what it means is that you're only, you can generate images very, very quickly. And you're only limited by the depth that you want to go and the speed of sound. The speed of sound in tissue is like 1500 meters per second. So it's really just how deep you want to record and then that's it. So it turns out you can get about 15,000 images per second um, down to about 10 millimeters oh, wow. in the brain. So you can move really quick. <clears throat> yeah, and then you can do more some... of a data processing issue than a, uh -huh. than a speed <laughs> yeah. issue, right? Yeah. So that was the other unlock, right? Is like, not only was this kind of a novel idea, but it was coming at a time where we could actually handle that data throughput. Um, so ultra fast ultrasound imaging is a relatively new technique, partially because we just can actually get that data into systems and start breaking it down on the fly. So then you can start doing tricks like kind of angling, like tilting these waves as you send them down into the brain. And you can kind of think that as like, you know, like a dog kind of like tilting its head to hear a little bit better. Or like sure. if you really want to see something in 3D, you kind of have to move your head around it a little bit. Same sort of thing here. Like if you tilt that, it disambiguates the source of those echoes coming back. And then you compound them together and you get a much higher quality image, much faster than you could line scan it. And you can get ensembles of these things so you get like hundreds or thousands of frames per second still that are these really high quality images uh and then from there you can filter out you notice there's kind of flicker in the image as you go um and that flicker in the image can be due to a couple of things the tissue is moving because you have pulsatility as your as your heart beats your brain actually kind of pulses so you have mm -hmm. tissue motion which is kind of spatially broad and slow and then you have really spatially precise and fast signals that are moving. And you see this in speckle. So this is this kind of flickering in the signal. That's the blood flow within vessels that you're actually seeing because red blood cells okay. are bouncing ultrasound waves back. And so we can't really see the, the red blood cells themselves, but we see the speckle that results from them moving around. And then you can filter those out and now you have blood flow. Why do we care about blood flow? As neurons in the brain are active, they use metabolic resources like oxygen. They have to be resupplied by the bloodstream. So they sort of signal these uh, upstream smooth muscle fibers, the vessels open, blood flows in, and now we see that. If you get down to really small scale, you can start to see that on a really precise level. So this is not a new idea, this neurovascular coupling. This is something that functional MRI has been doing for decades, and that's how it works. We just mm -hmm. see it down to this really, really precise level. So rather than seeing arteries that are perfusing big, big chunks of brain, which means that whole chunk of brain has to be doing something relatively coherent to signal that entire arterial flow to change in a coherent way. We instead see these capillaries and arterial, uh, capillary beds and arterioles that are really, really small, that are perfusing really small local groups of neurons that might be doing kind of all different things from voxel to voxel, which means we, the kind of bandwidth or number of signals that we can detect in parallel is much, much, much higher than what you'd get with fMRI. 
So we're, wow. you know, an order of magnitude or two more sensitive to brain function than MRI. That would definitely not have been my guess because I'm I'm thinking of like uh, FNIRS technology, a functional near infrared spectroscopy, which I've always thought of as like a compromise, um, a compromise like fMRI technology where you're measuring that blood flow, you have an ability to get functional information from the brain, but, uh, and you know, you don't have to have a huge system that you can sit in. Um, but of course, you're not going to have that same uh, specificity and resolution that you can get with an MRI machine. So mm -hmm. it's really interesting to hear that you can get that information um, all from using ultrasound and actually in, it sounds like in some cases, and uh, have much better uh a much better resolution than you can with yeah. fMRI, which is so fascinating. And also interesting to me that you are, so you're taking these images that are giving you structural information, right? But then you're looking at these minute differences and you can do that because the time scale, you can take so many uh, images every second, right? Yeah. So you can see these little flickers. And then from those images, that's so interesting that you can derive information about blood flow from that. That's uh that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there, it's not without its trade-offs, though. So you mentioned near-infrared spectroscopy, which is a non-invasive technique. And so sure. one, one benefit that light does have over sound is that specific wavelengths of light will go through bone relatively well. They still are aberrating and scattering and doing their thing. But they do make it through. The same way if you take, like, a red light and shine it through your palm, or I guess if you just take a light and shine it through your palm, what sure. you see is that red color and shining all the way through the kind of thinner parts of your hand. Same thing with near-infrared spectroscopy. You have this kind of red light that night likes to penetrate tissue and, and even bone. Ultrasound does not go through bone very well, unfortunately. So this is an invasive technique, but it's much less invasive than putting electrodes actually into the brain. And it's a much it's, it's a meaningful difference, the skull versus brain, once you're actually doing surgery. Because the second that you open up the meninges, so the dura mater, the kind of protective leathery membrane that protects your brain and separates the central nervous mm -hmm. system and its immune system from the rest of your body and its immune system. Um, once you open that, you invite a risk for infection or bleeds that are very, very serious. So we've heard of meningitis and other central nervous system infections. These are very dangerous. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas Putting a hole in the skull, even though it sounds a bit scary, is actually extremely, extremely, extremely low risk. So, from a neurosurgeon's point of view, that's a thirty-minute procedure. It's a you know one-inch incision, right. herbal, and you're kind of done. Suture it back up, and you can go home. Um, so, you know, it's. I don't mean to say that the invasiveness should be off-putting. That it doesn't. It doesn't uh, limit things in some ways. It does, but um, it opens up a kind of host of possibilities. And again, this is this kind of minimally invasive space that I think is underexplored. That's interesting. So you're not you're not penetrating the dura. It's sitting right on top of that. Yep, sit right on top of the dura. Yep. So you can either do that in cases like the early studies we did. These are in craniotomized animals, so you just have access right to the dura. Um, in humans, then you'd want to make that fully implantable. Um, and that's kind of the direction that this field is heading is like, okay, we have proof of principle that you can detect brain states. And we know that you can change brain states. Like how do we make this clinically relevant? That's, that's fascinating. So how many of these devices and how many burr holes do you have to make um, for, I, for I, I guess that's a, that's a loaded question because it kind of depends on what you want to do as yeah. well. Yeah. Right. So could you give me like an example application of, okay, this is the information that we want to localize in on. And then what do you have to do in terms of device implantation to get? Because I imagine there's some cross-section, right? You're, you're getting these planes of, of information at a time. Mm -hmm. So you need a few devices to set that up, right? Yeah. So what we've done so far exactly is 2D planes. And we get a pretty big chunk of the brain uh, there, but it's you know just a cross-section. There's no reason you can't do 3D imaging. And in fact, that's the way that the lab that I was in and, and the stuff I'm working on now is starting to go is towards doing 3D volumetric imaging. That's just an engineering problem. Um, but nonetheless, you're not going to get the entire brain with a single device. doesn't mean that there isn't really interesting information there. So with a single location to record from uh, at Caltech, we were able to do all sorts of different decoding from multiple effectors. So is the monkey going to move his eye or his hand? 
What direction is he going to move? What time is he going to move? We could actually predict all of those wow. things before he ever actually did it using nothing but a single plane, so relatively kind of small section of the brain. Wow. Um, and there was enough information there to discern all of that. Um, so in that case, I can definitely say with 100% certainty, motor states, you don't need that much of the brain because <laughs> we've seen it. Wow. It's yeah. relatively small. Other things as you move into, uh, let's say like epilepsy, you want to look at mesial temporal lobe epilepsy in humans. That's mm -hmm. relatively localized, but not as much as motor. You're probably going to want a 3D view because you're going to want to localize that epileptogenic activity. So you want to see the source of the wave. It's kind of epicenter. And then you want to see these emanating things flowing out of it. And so in that case, you want a little bit wider field of view. You want 3D, but you could probably still get away with a single transducer in the skull. Um, but it needs to be a 2D transducer that can create 3D images. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then as you scale up to things like neuropsychiatric and cognitive disorders, which is covering depression, anxiety, neuropathic pain, OCD, bipolar, these start to involve circuits that are kind of poking all around the brain. Now, you can look at key areas of those circuits, and that's the approach that much of the electrophysiology uh, science has done, is like, let's just look at this node and this node in the network, because that will tell us enough about its activity to try to stimulate it back into the right place. But it's really hard to find those nodes. It's hard to know which ones you should go to. They change over time. They're very person-specific, and that's why those technologies have struggled to scale to, to kind of large populations and efficacy. But there are many proofs of concept across multiple psychiatric conditions, and deep brain simulators are already approved for OCD and tremor. Um, so as you start to go to those, then I don't know, it's a bit of an open question, isn't it? Because we don't know that much about those networks. If you want to get the whole brain, sure. just as an example, I'm fairly confident you could do that with about six implants, um, oh. which sounds like a lot, but it's a lot less than you it would did. need for electrophysiology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And especially if they're small burr holes as well. Um, yeah. you know, I'm thinking about, you brought up epilepsy using an ECOG grid, um, mm -hmm. to, you know, you have to open the dura as well in most cases and put that on the brain. And that requires a, a pretty big craniotomy to do that. So yeah, yeah, this, uh, yeah, this, this is a really, really compelling approach. Um, and yeah, I mean, six, six sounds pretty good to me, but I could see how, um, <laughs> that would definitely be scary. Um, if you're just hearing about, you know, neurotech, implantable neurotech for the first time, but yeah, yeah that's, too, that. I'm not too worried about that kind of narrative. It's been really interesting. I've been thinking a bit more lately about all the different implantable technologies that have come into existence or, or just surgical techniques that have come into existence over the last hundred years. And like, I'm particularly interested in the early um, pacemakers that they would not only, if you think about this, like try to imagine time before pacemakers, the idea of a device being sure. responsible for the beating of your heart, that's already scary in principle. Mm. But a lot yeah. of those earlier devices had these massive chest units to power them that were nuclear powered, which is like, really? Yeah. plutonium. Like <laughs> I, I don't know. I need to read more about them. I'm just like, it's. But to me, I'm like, that's the... It, that's good. I know. want radiate, yeah, ionizing radiation on my heart. Perfect. Wow. And they were safe as long as they didn't, like, sure. break. Um, <laughs> but there's a reason we don't use them anymore. Um, so yeah. there are those, you know, LASIK, like, shine a laser into my eye to cut it open. I'm sure yeah. sounded very scary at its, at its inception. So I think this could very much be the same, which is, it sounds scarier, but not any scarier than a lot of things would have sounded when first proposed. Interesting. So are you, I, I don't know what, what stage you're at, but in terms of implanting in humans or talking to people that might benefit from this technology, what, what are you hearing in terms of their questions? So, so you said that you're not too worried, at least in the long-term implementation of this technology, about uh, those potential fears of getting an implant um, because there's precedent for that. But yep. yeah, I guess what, what questions come up and and what does concern people? You have to kind of slow boil the frog here, right? <laughs> you can't yeah. you can't jump straight to drilling holes in otherwise able-bodied, unimpaired people and say, don't worry, this is going to be awesome. You're going to have a great time. <laughs> They'll just laugh at you and tell you no, and the FDA is never <laughs> going to talk to you. You start um, in cases where there really is no added risk. So, for example, we just put out a paper recently of a person who had experienced a traumatic brain injury as the result of a skateboard fall. 
as their brain was swelling, this presents an existential threat to them. So they're going to go to the hospital. They're going to have a large portion of their skull zipped off anyway, as this, and as a decompressive craniectomy that allows the brain to swell and then kind of go back down over time. Well, in those cases, you need to go back and put back some sort of prosthetic skull at some point. So, Mm -hmm. you know, their brain is protected again. And rather than in this case, putting back a titanium mesh or one of the other options that's available to, uh, to cranial reconstruction patients, we put back in an already FDA approved, cosmetically perfect, effectively skull prosthetic that kind of mimicked the unimpaired side of their head. But it was made out of a material that is sonolucent. So it's actually completely transparent to ultrasound. So now this person looks, walks, talks 100% like anyone else. But the kind of secret that they have is basically they have a glass skull underneath their scalp. So for the rest of his life, he can come into the lab. We can just hold the transducer up to his head and we can see his brain very clearly. Now, there are companies that are interested in this type of approach for anatomical imaging. So imagine you've had a glioblastoma or a tumor removed from your head. Mm -hmm. Now you have a window to basically go and get very easy checkups with ultrasound rather than the expensive alternative MRI and other forms of imaging. So it's non-radiating, non-ionizing, so very safe. And now you have this like window to the brain. So there it's like, okay, no added risk. Why not have a transparent skull? That sounds great. Then you kind of move it forward. Other indications, traumatic brain injury, epilepsy, where people are already having portions of their skull removed. And then you give them the added benefit of here's a technological improvement that could help with your indication and make life better. And then you move back. And so, okay, well, now that we know that it works in these people, we've proved safety, we've proved efficacy, and we have this market-approved device, ideally. Then you can start to say, okay, well, how in what indications is there minimal added risk to put a burr hole in that otherwise would not have been there? But we know from what we've learned in other indications, this could provide a massive benefit. Now, this has been the approach that others have taken. So deep brain stimulators have been around decades and decades, and there's hundreds of thousands of those implanted. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, we kind of understand the safety profile. Um, We've put it in people before. Let's try it for a new indication. The difficulty there is that to go to a new indication usually means putting it in a slightly different location in the brain. These things are big, right? They're like dropping a telephone pole into your brain. Mm -hmm. And so along the way, you damage different cells and different parts of the brain. And so you really have to have a close conversation with the FDA. Are we at risk of damaging something that could cause a deficit? Well, that's a very valid question. The cool thing about remote sensing techniques, whether it's optical, ultrasound, or something else, is that by nature of being implanted at all, you have access to everything in the field of view of that technique. And you're not adding any risk to say, well, I'm already implanted for indication A, but this person has a comorbidity indication B. Why don't we enroll them in a trial and go ahead and, you know, this is just basically a sign the waiver. It's more like a software beta than anything to say, let us, you know, we've already got this data. Let us take a look at it and understand what's going on in indication B. And then you can kind of introduce therapeutics and kind of hook and ladder through all of these different indications without adding any risk as you go. So I think once you have the platform of these remote sensing techniques, these second generation BCIs, the progress from indication to indication should be infinitely faster than what we've experienced with more invasive BCIs. That makes sense. Yeah, and that that really does open your like market potential and at least that first market, right? Because... DBS is a great benchmark in terms of, yeah, there's there's quite a bit of risk to taking a big shank and putting it down um, into deeper areas of the brain. And so you have to have a pretty severe uh, issue that you're trying to fix, like Parkinson's, very severe depression. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. I mean, you, why not try mm-hmm. something with ultrasound first? And, uh, you know, if that's where you're going to, if that's where you would end up otherwise anyway. So that's that's really interesting. Okay, so you've you've convinced me that ultrasound is really cool, and I need to spend some time hitting the books to learn more about this because uh, it is it's really fascinating. Awesome! Um, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get everyone one at a time. Yes, no, for sure. And I mean, I'm I'm learning so much now, and I, I really appreciate this, and uh, I I uh, I think that the audience will as well. Um, but I want to I want to shift focus a little bit. We'll still be talking about ultrasound, but sure. on your 
on your LinkedIn and when we've talked before, um, you talk about creating the next generation of neurotechnology. So that makes sense in terms of where we've been talking about. Um, and then you say, and BCIs. So for a brain-computer interface, right, you're not just recording the signal, you have to do something with it. So we've talked about some applications, mostly clinical applications um, around, like you talked about, epilepsy, depression, bipolar is potential things, right? But for a brain-computer interface, what is, what is the application that you see um, being able to use uh, ultrasound for? Yeah, I'll, I will get to the question as intended in a moment. But okay. I do want to say one thing, which is sure. that yeah, yeah. I think that the term brain-computer interface is often, almost always, overdefined in its in its use rather than its original intent. Which, if you just think about brain computer, this is the interface between them. That's sure. a very very broad definition, and so I bet that's why I use this terminology, next generation BCI, because I do think we've seen the first generation of commercial BCIs in the form of Neuralink and BlackRock that's built on decades of academic experience using those devices. So let's call that the first generation of commercialized BCI. As we move to the next generation, those capabilities should move further. So people often conflate the term BCI with motor neuroprosthetic, which is what sure. basically every commercial Computer application control, is. Computer control, right. Yeah, exactly. Control a cursor on a screen, control a robotic limb. Even speech prostheses are typically motor speech prostheses. So we're decoding the larynx and the tongue and, and right. you know other forms of motor activity that produce speech um, rather than the kind of semantic content the upstream in the brain that tells you about what the speech actually is or what the intention of the communication is, which is a different brain signal. So my goal is like, yes, first generation BCIs are largely motor neuroprosthetics second generation, third generation, and so on, BCIs should go well beyond motor neuroprosthetics. So I've mostly been talking about in this conversation, neuropsychiatric cognitive disorders, the therapeutics that should be developed, digital therapeutics for those. And I would still classify that as a BCI because it requires a piece of hardware and a platform behind it, software, that is an interface between a brain and a computer, and ultimately then going closing the loop by stimulating the brain directly. Now, a motor neuroprosthetic can stimulate the brain directly, and there's lots of academic work on that, but more often it's about control an external device like a robotic limb, and then you get visual feedback, and that's where the loop right. kind of closes back. Am I getting the result that I expected? Or you might get haptic feedback or some other form. But I think that when you think about it in its most abstract form, a BCI applies to all of these. And where I think... We, we go next is beyond motor. So mm. motor has limitations because our brain has co-evolved with our physical bodies to operate in a physical construct of the earth that we live on and the universe beyond it, that there are limitations to how fast a limb can move or how fast my tongue can move when I speak. Certainly. And that there are sort of speed limits to that system that are in sync yeah. with the world around us. On yeah, the other hand- mimicking some- some uh, potentially lost ability or, mm -hmm. uh, or you know, doing it to, to something that we're very familiar with, right? So a lot of these cursor control things, it's like, oh, imagine your arm moving up and like tapping something in front of you, right? So yeah, yeah okay, that's interesting. I'm just getting my, uh, my base of knowledge before you go to the next thing there, okay. Yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly right. Your, your point is that these are largely restorative. You take a lost right. function and give it back to a person. And that is absolutely the goal. Um, and then I think that that's also true in these neuropsychiatric cognitive disorders. You're taking a maladapted system that's kind of firing the wrong way and perturb it back, try to push it back towards a more adaptive, healthy state. And that's still a form of restorative BCI. But I think the essence of your original question is like, what can we extract from the brain that we're not doing now? And I think that right. that's the kind of fun, you know, it's a bit more augmentative rather than restorative, although I think those lines are much blurrier than people like to give credit to. Um, that, you know, you start off with like, okay, if you can take a person with a depression score that's quite abysmal and put them back to baseline, what's to stop you from taking a person that's only slightly below baseline and moving them above baseline? Well, that's a fair question. Maybe that's the, mm -hmm. one of the first things you do. Um, and so I think that that's, that's totally reasonable to, to expect that as we develop uh, BCIs for neuropsychiatric conditions, they start to move into less and less severe cases and eventually towards augmentation. 
And there's a whole host of ethical questions to answer there. Um, and we can come back to that if you like. But the other things that are very interesting that there are already proofs of concept for are visual and semantic decoding. So you can look at Dora Sow's work from Caltech decoding face patches. So you can literally kind of stick electrodes all over the inferotemporal cortex of a monkey. Mm -hmm. And then from just a few features, reconstruct a face that that monkey is seeing. So oh, wow. that's really that cool. That the monkey is seeing. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then there's been similar work using functional MRI from Jack Gallant's lab and his postdoc, Alexander Huth, that's now, I think, um, in Texas as a professor, uh, using fMRI to decode the scenes that a person has seen. So you can literally kind of show them a video screen in the MRI scanner and then using only the brain activity, reconstruct what was on the video screen. And if you haven't seen these videos, go look them up because they're super cool. And it's like, it looks like a dream state version of what's on the screen. And I like to point out they've been doing this all the way back. And I think the first paper was 20, I'm forgetting exactly when, but you know, it's like coming up on a decade ago or something. So this is before the yeah, generative I think, I think AI. It, I think it is later. either 2012 or 2013. So you're right. You're right on that. But I remember seeing when that first uh, research came out and then, yes, the the most recent one where they were using generative AI. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's wild. Yeah. So, and I like to point that out because it's like, you know, this isn't just something where they decode some really low level brain state and they're, you know, a couple bits of information and then they just throw it at a GAN and the GAN creates a beautiful visual scene. This really is building from right. the, the brain wide network of semantics and, um, and visual states, what the person's seeing. And there's some early work that's about to come out, hopefully in the next few months of just um, imagined vision and imagined objects. And so now, you know, you're getting away from having to show the person the stimulus. You're just telling the person, just think about a yellow banana or whatever it is. And they'll think about a yellow banana and you can deco decode that and show it on the screen um, directly from brain activity. That's interesting to me because it isn't as susceptible to the speed limits of the motor system. You can start to kind of meld generative things like generative AI and others together with a person's intent, um, their their motor intent, their semantic intent, whether they're telling a story, et cetera. And you can sort of st start moving further and further back into the brain and extracting that information earlier on in the pathway. That, that is that is so fascinating. Yeah, and my, my mind is just um, exploding and overwhelmed with potential <laughs> like possibilities for that, certainly in terms of computer control, but then just how we're interacting with devices in general, right? At, at the speed of thought being a, um, being sounding like it's more achievable with, with this, then you're always going through that secondary motion of if you're controlling a prosthetic, great. Like that's sort of direct, but if you're doing like a cursor control, it's always the secondary thing, trying to liken it to something else yep. that we have with body movement. But this is, yeah, this is, this is interesting. And I, I, and I will be fascinated to see how interfaces develop around that, too, because we everything that we use right now, like I'm looking at you on a computer screen, right? I, I type on a keyboard. These are all through motor movements, like you're saying. And so it will be such an interesting user experience uh, problem, as well as it is uh, an interface and, and computing problem um, to just redefine what those interactions look like. And that is that is really fascinating. And I and certainly the next generation, I see that. So that uh, that title is is well deserved for this. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm very excited about those user user interface problems as the technology becomes available. I think we'll start to see what that looks like. As you pointed out, we've sort of just and this is true of most design. We saw it in in mobile phones that you start off with a kind of skeuomorphic something that represents something you already know. Mm -hmm. So the early Note app on your iPhone literally looked like a yellow notepad and it's kind of cheesy. And over time, it moved off and became its own thing. Same thing with BCIs, that we're just like melding a motor neuroprosthetic to an existing Windows operating system or whatever it is, because that's what's familiar. But eventually, we'll go, you know, the user interaction here is can, you can debase it from these things that don't necessarily serve the best use case of that BCI. And yeah, time will tell. That is that is so cool. Okay, I... Uh... 
I do want to get into ethics a little bit of this. Um, we're, we're coming up towards time here, but, uh, and we could, you know, probably have a five hour conversation about ethics, but we'll, we'll <laughs> yeah. try to keep it brief. So especially as we're talking about technologies that are getting information directly from thought, right? We've talked about those examples from the fMRI research where they're reconstructing what someone is seeing. And you were talking about the possibility of not just what someone is seeing, but what someone is thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And so this, you know, there become a whole bunch of potential privacy concerns with how that data is handled, um, how the person is consenting to this and understanding um, what is going on to the, to the extent that they can and that these can be explained to them. Um, so just generally, um, how are you in, in your own work um, thinking about these broader ethical uh, questions, these broader ethical concerns? And so how do you apply that to the, the work that you're doing? Do you have any um, like self-imposed rules or red lines that you are remaining aware of? Yeah, the, the red lines for us are the existing regulations. So at least for invasive devices, you are still at the mercy of a surgeon that has to put that device in a human being. And you're at the mercy of the FDA regulations that you have to pass through to make sure that you've considered all of these safety considerations. And the capabilities of those devices today are not extraordinarily dangerous. And so one thing I want to point out is that like, can you read thoughts? Yes, but those are extremely willful thoughts in the same way that your keyboard can read your thought. Yeah, your keyboard can read your thought only because you've willed it into intent. So, you know, we've worked with implanted patients at Caltech for years. And it, one thing is very true that like they are exhausted when they are done with a study session. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of concentration to control a BCI. Um, and I think that that will remain to be true for some time. And there's no, I, I'm not aware of any evidence of extracting thought without training a decoder ahead of time or the person's willful intent in that. But I do think we have to plan for a future that that could happen um, and make sure that you you prioritize the user's agency, their user data privacy, their ability to control what goes in and out of the device should remain with the user and not, you know, evil corp. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that that's all... Um, something that we really have to consider today. But at the same time, there's the other side of that ethical question, which is you don't want to overly or early regulate something that can also give meaning back to someone's life. So there are tens of millions of people in the US alone that suffer with treatment-resistant forms of depression. And these are like really, really you know, severe cases in many cases. So these are people that are on the verge of suicide at every moment. They are not living their best fulfilled life. And that is also an ethical conundrum, that anything that slows a technology that could give a more life back to those people, a quality of life that they otherwise wouldn't have, um, that is also a major, major opportunity cost. So there is a balance sure. to be found on like, you want to make sure that you regulate in the right things and you want to make sure that you don't overregulate it so the technologies that can help people don't can't make it to those people. Um, so I do think that there are some really concrete steps. I spent a couple of years as the chief neuroscientist at a company called AE Studio. We had been developing user data privacy tools that we developed open source very much in the line of Linux. Look at the code, contribute to it, help us. Um, that actually builds an infrastructure for training BCI models in a way that the data never has to come off of the, the user's device. So this is based on federated learning for people out there that are interested in it and, and then actually encrypting that data back and forth. And so you get the benefit of if you had aggregated millions of users and created a super uh, BCI model, but at the same time, you don't actually have to sacrifice user data privacy. So I think there are actual technological wow. solutions to some of these problems. Um, that's on the user data privacy side. I think the Agency side is a little bit more nebulous, and I, I don't know that you know that's going to take some time to figure out. And it's also going to depend on the applications that emerge as useful. Luckily, we do have a little bit of a moratorium on that, thanks to the fact that the most capable devices are still very much medical devices, so they are regulated by the FDA. Right. That that makes sense. Yeah, I, I appreciate your your approach and the way that you're talking about this and hearing about the work that you did at, at AE Studios um, to try to store and process the data locally. Um, because I hear a lot from people in this industry, especially, um, you know, there's a lot of money flowing into this industry. There are investors that are coming in and I'm hearing um, conversations about, oh, well, people won't understand this and they'll just adopt it and it'll be fine. And 
these are like some of these ethical problems like it's just it's too big to to tackle and all of this stuff and I just I appreciate that you're showing that um, you know these are complex problems these are are problems that are going to be changing and we need to protect people but instead of just being like oh that's you know we'll just force our way around it that you're talking about some uh, some steps that you can actually take uh, to to do that and solve some of those ethical problems as well. So my last ethics question then is uh, so you're talking about how a little bit about the regulatory environment in terms of you want uh, you want an environment that's supporting of innovation, especially so that you can get these technologies out there for people while also protecting people. Um, and so and, you know, each every country um, or group of countries has their own ideas of what those regulations should look like. Um, and then, you know, people, entrepreneurs, researchers and IRBs at universities, they all have their own little rules as well. Right. So who who do you think or who would you like to see being in charge of either making these decisions or just putting together ethical and, and legal frameworks for this? Um, like, like who, who should those people be? How would you like to see those conversations go? And I realize it's a very big question. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for yeah. some for some context, um, Rafael Yusta at the Columbia Neuro Rights Initiative has been a, a pioneering uh, voice on this. Nita Farahani just recently wrote a book, which I haven't had time to read yet, but um, I assume that she I highly recommend it. It's very is good. It, is it good? Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, and my former advisor, John Wolpaw, was, um, I think, the either first or last author on the Nature paper with Raphael, where they kind of outlined some principles for ethical neurotechnology development. Um, and a lot of the pieces that were in that were actually adopted by the Chilean constitution, which was the first example mm-hmm. of neuro rights being codified in a constitution, which is pretty cool. Um, and that, that seems to be catching on. I just recently heard of another country that's escaping me that is considering adopting uh, similar rights oh, in the wow. constitution. So I do think that there are higher level guiding principles like those, which is you know preservation of agency, the right to um, choose or not to use uh, technology that can be broadly agreed upon. And that conversation, at least so far, is seeming to go quite well, um, especially in Western countries. And I think that we'll see those codified um, slightly differently, but overall the intent so far is pretty consistent. Um, The specifics of the instantiations of those rules is yet to be determined. And I don't know that any single group, in fact, I would almost certainly say that no single group should be in charge of setting those, that that should be um, community-led discussion that the users should be highly involved from the beginning, that we should try to learn from past mistakes with other technological advances, whether it's nuclear or social media, um, that we should look back to what worked, what didn't. Um, I know this is a little bit of a vague answer, but I I don't think that there's a a single answer yet. And it really does have to come from those higher level guiding principles for now. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I like that answer quite a bit. And that's, I think generally where I would go, um, you know, if, if I was answering that question as well is, but, but this is what I like about ethics and philosophy is that these are, these are open questions, um, mm-hmm. but, and they can be overwhelming, but it doesn't mean that they're not, um, that you can't come to a good resolution. Like you brought up um, the use of nuclear weapons or chemical weapons. I think mm-hmm. that generally um, the world has done a pretty good job of coming together and saying that we shouldn't be using these technologies. There are violations, but um, I think that that's an encouraging example to point to. Yeah. All right. So is there, before we go, is there anything else about your current work at Convergent or Caltech that you would like to share um, with the audience? I think we've covered it quite well, other than just to say, to keep an eye on the space, we are um, putting together some really interesting neurotechnology work at Convergent that I, I hope to share more of in the very near future. Um, when it's made public, but um, just keep an eye on the space. There's some really, really cool stuff coming up. Very cool. Um, and and last question um, for people who are listening: our our demographic is mostly uh, undergrads and early uh, early graduate students. 
Um, if they're listening and they are thinking to themselves, wow, this technology is so cool. I really want to work on uh, on ultrasound neurotechnologies. Uh, what quick advice do you have for them? Fundamentals, um, because this is such a multidisciplinary field. So, you know, to develop a neurotechnology that's implantable, you need medical science, um, you need surgeons involved, um, you you need mechanical engineers that design the actual device. You need electrical engineers that design the circuitry. You need neuroscientists involved. Um, and I mean, this just goes on and on and on. There are a hundred different ways that you can come at neurotechnology. So don't stress about the particular path. Mine has been all over the place. Um, but instead, like the general interest and really, really solid fundamentals in whatever field it is that you find that is the intersection of things that you're kind of naturally good at and enjoy and the things that are you know, still applicable to neurotechnology. So go out and learn your fundamentals because they will always serve you really well. So for me, those kind of fundamentals in engineering and physics continue to apply every day. And um, you have to be quite flexible. Neurotechnology is a very, very new field. There's no playbook yet. So make it yourself. That is that, that is perfect advice. I love that. And I always give a very similar answer to that as well, because people will come to me quite a bit and say, hey, what should I study? It's like, OK, well, what what are you interested in? Like <laughs> if you if you have that interest and you want to apply it to neurotech or to a specific technology, like you said, there are a whole host of ways that you can that you can get to that. So, um, yeah, I I love how multidisciplinary this field is. And that's uh, that's a great point. Um, all right. Before we go, are there any uh, any plugs that you have? How can people follow your work? Uh, I will include links to uh, any things that will have links in the in the show notes. But anything that you want to shout out? Yeah. Um, to stay up to speed on like next generation neurotech, probably Twitter is the best way. Uh, unfortunately, maybe. <laughs> it's, I think it's X now. Yeah. Oh, geez. I can't, yeah. I can't keep I'm, up with it. Yeah. I, it is what it is. Uh, my handle's at Sumner LN. Follow me there. <laughs> Add me on LinkedIn. Um, you can always shoot me a, a message through my website, www.sumnerorman.com. Um, yeah, all those ways. Very cool. All right, I will make sure that all of those links are in the description and show notes um, wherever you're listening to, uh, to this podcast. But Sumner, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I've learned so much about ultrasound. Um, I'm sure our audience uh, will enjoy this quite a bit as well. So thank you. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. This was fun.